0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The following program is brought to you by Susti Party, an online party supply store for eco-friendly party products and biodegradable compostable tableware. For more information, visit sustiparty.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn.
2: Welcome to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host Michael Harlan Turkel, Here today, hoping not to talk too much turkey because there's so much more to say with Chef Matthew Leitner from Atera, New York. Thanks for being in the studio. Oh, thank you. Excellent. So we will touch a little about the big bird uh, later on, but I mean, we've had such crappy, you know, uh, Thanksgiving meals in the past and such dried out turkey that we have to set a foundation for understanding of technique before. Um, and you're a Midwest boy, grew up in Nebraska, mainly yeah. uh, cooked around there. What was food like then? What was a, a Thanksgiving for your family?
3: Well, I think Thanksgiving then, you know, was a celebration, getting everyone together, uh, roasting a turkey, uh, usually my mom stressing out uh, the entire day. But for everyone else it was mostly trying to think about what we're going to have for leftovers. And leftovers made the, you know, the dried turkey breast into a good stew that was nice <laughs> and moist. And so, and you, I still hear that a lot. I hear that a lot of people are like, oh yeah, we have to have turkey, but then we have to have, to have leftover day. So
2: thinking that day ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like uh, working in a restaurant too. It's not like you're picking up a dish, uh, you know, creating it without mise en place. It's, it's kind of like cooking on the line. Yeah, That you prep true. yourself out. Um, but, you know, Thanksgiving, when did you start cooking your own? When When did you get behind the stove?
3: to do the turkey? Yeah. Um wow, I still don't even know if i actually do the turkey. <laughs> uh working so much and then you kind of get there and you just put in your input. I yeah. don't know if it's always good just like, "No, put more butter on it. <laughs> no, brine it." And then usually just sit there and watch football, but uh no, probably, you know, once I left um left Nebraska um and depending on where I worked cuz some places that I worked at were open for Thanksgiving. Uh, and then probably just recently I've, I've been able to have a job where, uh, we've been closed for Thanksgiving as well. So probably in the last five years started really developing, you know, our own style of cooking turkey.
2: Was it things like that, those family meals that interested you in food or were you just fascinated about cuisine from a young age?
3: Well, I first really got interested in, in cooking just because of the level of entertainment. Um, i don't know remember how many times like being either on my dad's side of the family and everyone's together my mom's side of the family and you know we're we're sitting at home and everyone's kind of you know bored and it's like well what are the kids doing and then we'd go out you know and then they'd be like well let's have some drinks let's let's eat some food let's enjoy ourselves and that whole idea of entertainment um uh, you know really intrigued me
2: yeah um and we'll talk about it eventually because it is a mightily entertaining restaurant and concept. Um, but, you know, to, to entertain your palate, the Midwest, Nebraska, other places that you live don't have the most vivacious uh, palates, per se. Um, we were talking just before about things like chicken fried steak um, and, you know, the stock of 80s supermarkets. How has your palate growing up there changed Or how has it informed how you cook now?
3: Well, I think, you know, I I feel like I've been fortunate enough that I got bored. uh, And I wanted to really try different things. Uh, Too many times that, you know, you'd hear other kids like, oh, we traveled here and and this. And and then through books uh, to really see, like, all these different cuisines. Oh, they use these chilies. They use these kind of beans. They have these crazy stews, these crazy flatbreads. And I think my brother and I, we used to always, like, sit at home starving you know, bored be like, oh, what are we going to eat? And then we'd be like, oh, television, you know, either uh, the food channel or some kind of uh, travel channel that would be showing all these different worldly cuisines. And we're like, man, what are we doing here right now? we got to go try these things. So I always kind of really wanted to um, build my palate. Uh, I always thought that was going to be key into uh, learning how to cook good food uh you like they always say you have to you know eat good food before you can actually really cook good food so uh kind of that was a a passion of mine
2: so you ate good food growing up because your father worked for a certain purveyor of uh, hot dogs
3: yeah uh you know you know working up midwest uh family very typical uh parents having multiple jobs um we basically ate out of as quick as we could, and out of necessity, like, okay, well, we have fifteen minutes to eat dinner. Uh, what can we do? What can we have so we didn't really have the you know too much of the huge dinners every single night, even though my mom she was she was always raised to be at home to eat dinner, and her mom would always make dinner every night uh either her father liked it or he didn't, didn't matter. My grandma would always cook. And so my mom felt like she had to do the same. So she always had about, you know, five to 10 like standby recipes that we'd always have. And sometimes like, you know, two or three days a week, we'd have chicken fried steak or we'd have her fried chicken or, you know, and these were these mainstays that she always went back to spaghetti and meatballs and things like that. Uh, But done at home and done well that we could all get together to have them.
2: Yeah. Um, At what point did you, you know, go to school to kind of extend that passion and wanted understanding?
3: Well, it, it kind of came, you know, I, I think going to culinary school for me is different than, than some other people. I, I went to culinary school because I didn't want to go to college. Um, I didn't like the idea of sitting down, someone, you know, lecturing and going over things and you have to take notes and you have to go read a bunch of things. And, and I felt like I didn't want to spend any time at a desk studying and i wanted to spend more time doing something physically uh so that's kind of you know i was got really interested in food i started learning uh just french food by you know getting cookbooks like alain ducasse and really learning about mother sauces and be like mother sauces it's like cuisines have (laughs) laws and systems about the sauces and the preparations what they do and i thought it was just Completely mind blowing for me, so I was like, was sent out to kind of really understand that and learn that.
2: Yeah, it seems like that's a point where things turn, and you realize, like you just mentioned, there are systems, uh, there are logistics to cooking. Um, and then initially mentioning that you didn't want to go to college and didn't want to formally educate yourself in that way. I mean, there there's such a formal regimen in in a kitchen. Um, so I always find it interesting and odd that people say i don't want to go to college because of reason x is usually the reason they get most excited about once they learn food um you had the opportunity to travel with this to go to spain uh most excitedly uh mugaritz um and i mean that's a laboratory right mm-hmm. how was that kitchen set up and what did you do in there that uh changed your you know mode of thought
3: well yeah i mean i think it's a it's a really funny um Set of circumstances to to not want to have structure, to not being uh, shown what to do, or having to sit there and listen to someone talk all day, to wanting to build a kitchen that was maybe more precise than a, a than a uh, college, or more precise than a laboratory, or more precise than um, lots of those jobs that you know we think are very mundane, and you know I, I think. It started at first as some of my first cooking jobs were, you know, I really love cooking like working with my hands. But before you knew it, you left work and you were wearing what you had on you. <laughs> like, you know, if I was working omelet station, I would have, you know, 30 dozen eggs that for some reason were all over me smelling like grease. If you forget the wash one, it, like the whole room stinks. It's like in, in working through that, we felt like I felt like it was a battle. It was like, here's this place that I love food and it's good, but just not a lot of care was taken into it. Yeah, we all loved it. We all thought that the dishes were good. But when it came down to the preparation of it, we just kind of failed in the sense. So actually being able to go to Spain and and see a place that, you know, you have a kitchen and there's 40 people working in it. Um, Maybe a handful of them are getting paid. uh, And you see just the organization and the structure and the cleanliness. Uh, And when I went in there for the very first time and... You know, and I probably was in there for, because I, I had got very rare opportunity to actually eat there, I think, about a week before I started staging there. And I was about as nervous as I think I've ever been just going to dinner. And I, we were in the kitchen and getting introduced to the chef de cuisine, and they're kind of talking about how they work. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching, like, one guy, and, you know, he's like, soaped down something, like, three times in probably the last ten minutes. You know, it's like you can't, can't get any cleaner. But it was, like, this drive, like, oh, there always has to be something on it. There is, like, some kind of film. There, we have to at least be doing something to get better and better and better. Uh, and you walk in there, and no one was touching the food with their hands. You know, they were very carefully, either with a spoon or an offset, or with tweezers or in containers. They were very gentle. And it wasn't like they were in a a rush to throw things on the plate. They were hovering over each individual dish, like, you know, inspecting it. You know, checking the temperature of the bowl, checking the temperature of the sauce, tasting the sauce, filling that, seeing how many granules or salt are on top. And it was like, wow. It it doesn't get much more precise than that. You know what's
2: kind of fascinating? Because I want to lead into the idea of you know, Eats and you spent time in Noma and even your restaurant now, you kind of uh, tell this fine line of nature versus science. Mm -hmm. Um, This is, this feels like my most inherit the wind uh, episode yet because, you know, we've had this evolution of food and um, we draw from nature in this way that it's, it's so expansive and exciting, but simple. And so is food nowadays, but where there's been evolution, there hasn't necessarily been a Darwinism in in kitchens, where we have all these new modern techniques, and a lot of people go one way or the other, but don 't you know uh, champion the fact that we now have these techniques, and we should be excited in exploring them um, at what point in your career did you try to fuse those two things?
3: well, in my opinion, I think technique is kind of an interesting thing um, technique. If you know how to execute it and you know it's going to enhance this idea that you have, then it's something that you should try to do. Um, but if it doesn't and you try to force it, you know it. Um, and I think some people just kind of do it and force it and just like, well, this is it. You know, this is what everyone's talking about. This is how we use the technique, and I'm using it now. And so I think it should work. And I think that's where we kind of fell in that sense. So. And, you know, it's the idea of, uh, you know, modern food versus classical food, where there was a time when, you know, we talk about, you know, back to chicken fried steak. Well, there was a time where pan frying something was probably very modern. uh, And then they were able to use it and use it on multiple things, but they don't use it on everything. You know, I know nowadays we want to pan fry everything or deep fry everything. But the things that work, we all know and that they all are like those staples. And the same thing goes down with modern technique as well. And yeah, there should be a lot of experimentation, because I think it kind of pushes the envelope. And it just pushes, uh, in my opinion, what it pushes me is the mindset. The mindset that there should never be maybe just a set recipe uh, for an ingredient, uh, or a classical preparation that you saw while well, this vegetable is used in this part region in France or in Italy. And so I think we need to put, you know, tomatoes, anchovies and things like that with it as well. And to try to take that, that more of uh, the modern mindset of that and trying to erase some of these old recipes and stuff and to really look at a product uh, almost at its bare state uh, is something that we try to do. Uh, and then if it helps us execute when we get this idea in our head of like a texture of a tomato should fill, or a texture of watermelon, or or uh, the, how a broth should fill on your palate, or things like that, and we want to use technique to enhance those. If it works, then yes, you know that's that's important.
2: Yeah, so it's never technique first, then texture afterwards. It's, it's...
3: well, yeah. I mean, I think it it just depends. Yeah, I, th- I think sometimes it is technique. Sometimes you you do something, you know, like. A, uh, cooking a pizza in a wood burning oven you know it's technique and then ingredients come and stuff like that and you put it together and it, it's amazing uh, so it's just a, it, that depends um, and some dishes can evolve around that and I think when you do a big tasting menu that you have the ability to do that and I have ability to do maybe something that's derived around a technique but but usually at the end it's it's about this almost innate feeling that we have when we eat and the sensations that we have while we're eating them And we really try to look at that with the food when people when they eat.
2: Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Come back and not necessarily go step by step, but do a progression through your tasting menu currently at Atera. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
1: Dubalay. And I'm Jessica Holsey. We are the entrepreneurs behind Susty Party. Susty Party creates responsibly made, eco-friendly party supplies and compostable tableware. Parties and events generate the second largest amount of waste in the USA, just behind the construction industry. Susty Party products make parties more sustainable and sustainability a little more fun. Susty Party plates, bowls, and straws are available in Whole Foods retail stores. And also at SustyParty.com. We offer a curated selection of other Susty approved party supplies. We also have a commercial division, SustyWare, that sells compostable tableware in bulk to businesses and food service industry establishments. Susty Party is a certified youth trade company and B Corporation. Our social, economic, environmental, and even spiritual values drive Susty Party to live our motto Respect, Respect Earth and, and Party On.
2: Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here today with Matthew Leitner of Aterra Restaurant here in New York. Um, I'd love to talk about your tasting menu because the uniqueness of Atera is that you come in and have, what, a 15-course progression uh, a meal um, that you don't really get to pick or choose, but which kind of chooses you. Um, wh- what's going on today? What's on the menu, chef?
3: Well, today, you know, we do about fifteen dishes, and beforehand we do about ten different snacks, and we do a couple different little treats at the end. So it, it just really depends. I mean, it, we're kind of getting into a season, uh, and it's been a little strange uh, the season so far, but kind of moving more towards an, into the fall. Yeah. Um. So you know, we start taking into account what how people feel when they walk in the door. Traditionally, you know, it's cold, it's windy, you want something warm, things like that. So as that starts to change, we start to change kind of our mindset of what we want to do and what we want to kinda of give people first. Um, but tr- like right now, tonight, we'll have guests come in and when you get in when you get into a terra and it's just blank, you know, just a, a concrete bar, you go up there, you sit there. There's no water glasses napkins nothing so you kind of walk in there and it's a little blank and it it does for a sense kind of feel cold but it's supposed to almost kind of give you this uh start uh of like okay well what's coming you know there's no hints to anything uh you can't really start guessing too much unless you're online of course because everyone (laughs) takes pictures of everything nowadays so um and then it, it, it kind of starts uh you know and we'll start something uh you know, crunchy or soft. And, you know, I, I think a tear is kind of a place of seasonality and a, a place of uh, some, you know, some luxury as well. So, like, we do a, a meringue that we use, that we froth beer and we dehydrate it. And then we serve it with caviar uh, as your very first thing. Uh, and we'll pair that with a beer cocktail uh, that we find is, is kind of fun, uh, refreshing. Uh, but at the same time, something familiar. Uh, there's a little cream in there, almost like from fresh. Uh, the little bitterness of the hops in the beer uh, tend to go very well with the caviar and it's just a very, very fun way texturally uh, to kind of get things started. And through that you'll start to see a a different progression of some different snacks. At at times, like right now, we have sunchokes in, we cook them for a few hours, uh, we fry them, we fill them up with the pulp on the inside with all kinds of different herbs and flowers and they have these really, really special texture uh, that you'll get from a vegetable that it's a little bit more difficult than most vegetables just because they're so high in pectin, almost kind of like a rind or a pork skin. Um, And then we'll move on to, you know, some more fun things. Uh, You know, we do a razor clam, which is basically like a saltine cracker that (laughs) uh, looks like a razor clam filled with uh, an aromatic cream of razor clams. Uh, Just kind of a fun, playful thing Uh, just to give people something to look at. Let them, you know, discover it themselves and enjoy it and you know at the same time to not take it too serious yeah uh, and just enjoy it um, and then we'll move on to some different things so right now we're kind of playing with the ideas of when, once we start getting into different courses uh, plated courses uh, we'll go through the snacks and you'll sit down and you will have uh, uh, almost a placemat come out and you know your civil war start coming out and then all of a sudden it's like it starts forming you don't really have the idea that well maybe it'll just continuously be like this Or maybe they will actually be a little bit more traditional. And that's something we're trying to work on a little bit, too. How do we continuously take apart some of those rules of almost rules of engagement when it comes to fine dining? Uh, And to maybe possibly you can sit down and and have spoons and knives and forks that come out, and you don't really know that they're there because you don't present them as a piece. But they come out just before the dish, and the dish goes down, and there's not too much thought about it. You just eat it. Uh, That's something we're trying to experiment with a little bit more on. But right now we we try to work with a couple of things. Uh, you know, we try to work on with the idea of having something hot and luscious, uh, and then maybe jumping into something that's cold, uh, a little bit off. Like in summertime, you want to kind of work your way into something kind of cold and refreshing to cool you down, uh, and then work into hotter dishes where we feel like it's kind of a fun time to let's get people warmed up, let's get them kind of into it. And then let's back it off a little bit. Let's cool them down. Let's make things a little bit subtler. And then go into more broth courses or vegetable courses and things like that. Uh, and it's been kind of a, an interesting thing. It's it, it's almost like a break, but it's not. The flavors are there. Uh, but it's not. It, it becomes more enjoyable because your palate's ready for it.
2: Yeah. It, it, you know, it's funny because you, you had this restaurant in Portland, Oregon, Castagna, mm-hmm. for a while. Do you feel like there are different different rules of engagement for diners
3: out there versus here. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I I feel like with this kind of food, it's just challenging anywhere. Um, And it's just up to me and what I'm going to do uh, on a given night, depending on where it's at uh, and how that's going to affect the the experience after, you know, the three, three and a half hours that you're there. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I, I think... For a Terra it's different because it's smaller and it has to be eye paced because we're very small. Uh and we don't want people we don't want people to lose a little bit of that intensity that comes with it, this constant enjoyment and things coming after you. Uh that's what we want this experience to be about. Now Castania on the other hand was a bigger restaurant. So you had uh, you know, tasty menus, you had five course menus, uh some a la carte stuff. Uh so it was kind of a, a little bit mixed. Uh, so just different in general.
2: Yeah, so it must have been fascinating to see that kind of breadth of uh, uh, interactions in a restaurant that had so many facets to it. And why choose a tasting menu? Why hone it on specifically that and make it more experiential and interactive in that way?
3: Well, a tasting menu is great because then you can start stripping things apart. Uh, For instance, we have a dish that's just chopped up lamb, basically, and, and, and that's basically it. Uh, now, if you give people a three-course menu and they just get a dish that's just chopped up lamb, they're gonna be like, "What the heck? You know, what is this? Where, what else is going with it?" So I feel like at that point, you know, because of uh, this uh, value perception that you have to have, you know, your herbs on it, or your sauce, or your egg yolk and your capers and things like that. But we want people to to notice a very specific technique that we do with the tomatoes and the lamb, and then that's it. Because you're going to have something after that. You're going to have another element after even after that one. uh, All the way through desserts, too. So
2: it enables you to hone a whole meal rather than just a course. So, I, I don't know. Do chefs think composite? Do they think that, you know, this makes a dish... But when you have a tasting menu, you can say, this makes a full menu, so you don't have to put your starch and your veg. Well, yeah. And I
3: mean, I think a lot of a lot of chefs think composite. I think composite. You know, even like some of the things that we've been kind of criticized about was that, well, only if these dishes were going to stand alone. I don't know if that would work. Well, that's not the intention. Uh, if that was the case, it would be a different concept with a different menu and, and, and different ideas. So, it, it, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I've been to... To have like a seamless somewhat uh, experience, you have to take away some ideas, push back on a couple, and push forward on on some other one. So you have this almost seamless quality from the very first thing you've eaten to the last thing you've eaten that really feels as yourself. I mean, considering it like almost like a a branding strategy, like here, I I want to put something on the the menu, but I want it to feel like us. I want it to look like us, I want it to feel like us, I want it to be us, and I want people to realize that um, without having too much going on.
2: Yeah. Well, so how do you feel? What do you look like? Explain that a little bit more, because um, from the images that I've seen, you know, uh, the New York Times review, uh, things are very naturalistic. Um, Some are even monotonic, like you're not even necessarily thinking that color is some of the, you know, uh, large component on the plate. Um, is there a mantra? Is there, you know, like uh, words to live by?
3: Well, I, it's hard to put it together in any kind of words, especially coming from my mouth, um, <laughs> because it's, you know, when, you, when you're in it and you're looking at it all the time, it's really hard to uh, put a phrase to it or, or whatever. Um, but for us, it, it is. It's about subtleties and simplicities and things that are going on that we find beauty in and that we really try, try to extract and try to force that and try to push that, uh, push the envelope towards seeing that. Um, and it could be something as simple as, you know, looking at some concrete that has, you know, mold on it or something, or something very interesting or textural or almost uh, natural artist art, and, and essentially, uh, and then really just kind of having fun with that um, and not feel like... You can somewhat do that with food, and I'm not saying that we're trying to paint dishes or trying to make everything look like art, but we want people to kind of feel this this connection with it. Like, wow, I, you know, either I've seen something that reminds me of this, or after they're done eating, they will go somewhere and then see something that reminds them of something that they've ate. And I feel like sometimes that gets lost a little bit with yeah. food, and that's something we try to do.
2: Well, let's let's talk about the F word, mm-hmm. foraging. Um, it seems like that same kind of discovery, too. You know, you you're you're in the middle of the woods and you stumble upon something beautiful, almost artistic. Uh, is it that same sensation for you?
3: Yeah. Well, I think it's you know, I, I, foraging is very interesting and and because it's more of a uh, like you said, it's about finding something. Uh, and once you find something, the very first time you notice it everywhere. Uh, and that's been one really interesting thing about foraging. It kind of allows you to really kind of open up your eyes and minds and your senses to a lot of things that are going on. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting part of it. Uh, not necessarily. I think, you know, in my opinion, I think foraging is, you know, interesting and fun. And I think it's a little popularized and uh, for something that's been done for, you know, multiple, multiple years. And restaurants using chanterelles and wild herbs and things like that. Remember when I first started cooking in Oregon, we'd have guys coming back with wood sorrel and miner's lettuce and things like that. And for us getting into it, when I first started at Castania, the whole foraging kind of took place of, you know, this inspiration, this like, you know, looking at textures, looking at our natural surrounding to really kind of develop what cuisine in a region could be or could feel like. Uh, and it just really opened up senses to a lot of different things.
2: Yeah. Well, how have those senses changed since coming to the concrete jungle?
3: Well, you know, New York's, New York's great in the, in the sense that there are so many amazing farmers and a lot of people forget that there is a lot of great agriculture, woods, outdoor activities and things. If you can get out, which is the challenging part, But, I mean, you can go in 45 minutes, and the same thing in in, in Portland. You can go 45 minutes and be out in the middle of nowhere. You don't see the city or anything like that. Um, And there are people out there who are doing it. There are people who forage specific mushrooms because there are some special ones around here uh, and some very specific things. Uh, And the difference between here and there is that here it's just more seasonal. Where there you basically have two seasons. And here you will have the whole four seasons. So you just, if what you want to do is forage and do things and call yourself a forage restaurant, which I don't think we should call ourselves a forage restaurant, but we we like using unique products, um, then, you know, you have to learn how to use these very specific things and roots and barks and different stuff like that uh, creatively if that's what you want to do.
2: Yeah, what, what of those ingredients are you extremely excited about? Because I'd like to point out, uh, the barks and the roots that you use, too, uh, are throwbacks as well. It's not like you found a whole new tree or a whole new, but yeah, re-implementing exactly. them in really awesome ways. I
3: mean, sometimes you can look at, you know, different—people have already been using a lot of these things for a long time. And we sometimes we try to uh, capitalize on, on some of that, like, uh, you know, we'll talk about spruce shoots which they're not in season right now, but spruce shoots have been used in making beer in Canada for many years. It's a very typical thing. So we're like, well, let's work on some kind of a toasted grain broth infused with spruce shoots, and that's almost like a beer kind of thing, you know. And you, that level of creativity comes up because it's somewhat familiar. If you ever had one before, or if you have not uh, well, that's a you know, it's a different story. But I know.
2: Then, I know you hold a level one or level two or both. Uh, you know, something from the psalm guild, but you you do realize how much you like beer, right?
3: Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I drink way more. Actually, for me, I, I got away from drinking wine a while ago for some reason. I don't know why. I think it's when I, I moved to Spain. But uh, beer and hard liquor, yeah, you can't really beat those two. Yeah, so. and
2: they're so pure, too. I mean, the simplicity of what they actually are is kind of uh, the antithesis of a lot of, like, modern chefs.
3: No, it, it's it's true. I mean, if you look—well, you know, even, even wine— uh, yeah, uh, some great wine producers can put very little together and and make extraordinary things. And but if you talk about like different kinds of bourbons and stuff like that, and the simplicity behind it, and some of the flavor profiles that you get, uh, I was talking to someone. Uh, someone brought me in a, a bottle of uh, uh, pappies, and you know I, w- I was drinking it, and I was like, oh, it tastes like bananas and wheatgrass and all. And they're like, what? How do you get stuff from it? And it's like, you know. It, once you start taking away all these different things and you focus in on that, like, you know, uh, gins or brown liquors or uh, beer, then you're able to, like, open things up. But now if you're like, well, I'll drink one beer a week or I'll, you know, have a glass of wine on Fridays or, well, maybe every once in a while after dinner I'll have a, a bourbon or something. Yeah. Then you don't – your palate doesn't really open up as much to them, you know.
2: So has that opened up a whole nother, you know, flavor profile for you? Because, you know, traditionally or not – there's – pairings and it's it's been wine and uh, we've seen it move into beer and cocktails that must create a whole bunch of other different subsets for you to play with and bring in the birches and bring in the barrels and
3: put yeah, those uh, flavors in your food. Yeah, I mean we we you know sometimes you know it's just about education. The more you learn about everything the more you understand why they're doing a specific thing to this and then you ask yourself this question well maybe I could use it towards food. Um Like, you know, we use a, you know, bourbon barrel and we cold infuse milk in it for about two to three weeks. And then we make ice cream with it. Uh, And that was basically, you know, me reading and thinking about of uh, all these uh, barrel aged cocktails. You know, and kind of going through the process of, well, how do you do it? You know, and if they're dry, you got to fill them with water. And we're like, well, why do you have to fill them with water? Then we'll just fill them with milk. And produces that so it's just about knowledge and like opening things up but then using them you know in a clever way it's not like well i'm going to use it to to age field stock or something like that which you know it could be good but um just has to have direct purpose yeah
2: so what kind of ingenuity do you have for a turkey for thanksgiving
3: for turkey uh for me i think it's keeping it simple uh, I feel like I just want to do a regular brine. I, I know like a couple of years ago you, you saw everywhere like today's show on all these different places. It's like all dry brine. And I, I want to do a really good, you know, infuse some spices, uh, salt, uh, and then uh, do a wet brine. Uh, and I think, you know, I'll just have to use some space at work so I can actually pull it off <laughs> uh, and let it sit there for, you know, a couple of days. So we'll see how it turns out.
2: Yeah, but are you a straight-up mashed potato uh- cranberry sauce kind of guy
3: yeah i mean i think uh you know when it comes to doing all of your sides it's a good time to kind of relive your childhood uh you know my mom used to always make these great egg noodles mashed potatoes green bean casserole uh, pumpkin pie uh you know the staples
2: yeah so coming from a place that you said had two seasons to one that has four uh do you feel like you get that much more to play with
3: I feel like it pushes you more because I think sometimes, like, you know, even that we've been open for a short time, uh, and the first year is always the most challenging, is because when we got open, it was right at the beginning of spring, and spring ended quick, and then it was summer, and so the entire platforms changed. You know, if you talk about spring being bitter and sour, and these are just the normal things that, that coincide with spring, and then you have summer which is all about richness and umami and sugars and and all these like natural sugars uh, and very savory and then moving right into fall quickly uh you lose a lot of that and then you also kind of get to this point where you know some of the roots aren't quite as sweet as they should be so you're not quite up to this level of savoriness or umaminess that you talk about and and food so you know it's um It's challenging because it pushes you and pushes you fast. And and one of the things that we want to live by is that, yeah, we have some fun techniques. And, yeah, some stuff looks pretty cool. But we want to put ourselves into a situation that, you know, if it's not right and it's not good, we're not going to keep it on. If the product's not amazing, we're not going to keep it on. And it's just we just need to force ourselves to be creative on the fly, uh, to do whatever we can and try to implement it. So sometimes you'll see fun stuff, too, where... Uh, you know, it's it's a very alive, alive process, so you'll see a dish come on and, and maybe for the first three weeks that it's it's in one stage and then it starts to change and starts to evolve and then through the next four or five weeks it, it becomes something else and then it's done. And, and what's interesting about that process is because now for the next year I can sit back and look at that and go, well, what we did after that didn't make it any better or worse doing that, but there was something really special about it. You know, for instance, like we were working on uh, a thing with uh, Matsutakis and Matsutakis are a thing that should definitely be served with themselves, but we were serving them with a piece of meat. And by the time when the dish arrived, the Matsutakis were gone, you know? So, but then it's like, well, now we won't have to wait for it next year. Yeah. Next year we'll be waiting for the Matsutakis, you know, and then being able to take rigorous notes and to be able to, to be like that. I, I feel like uh, that's, in my opinion, innovation, especially when it comes to food, because the products are all the same. Just they come at different times, Uh, and then to be ready for that change and to do something interesting. So
2: it's not so much innateness as it is just being ready and waiting for it again. It's the patience.
3: Yeah, it's the patience for it. Uh, It's the you know the sensitivity towards the product. It's the patient for the product, and then it's you know kind of that waiting game and kind of what's leading up to it. But when you look at a taste menu like we're, we're doing, it's a bit of an Rubik's cube. So you pull one thing out you might have the possibility to put 10 things on. But if you put one thing on, you might have the possibility to have to change 10 things. So it's very interesting. Yeah. It could be an herb. It could be an oil that we use. It could be a salt that we use. It could be something. And then all of a sudden you change that and want to move that. And then, no, it changes the dish. And then you have to change that. So it's quite the process.
2: Excellent. Well, season after season, year after year, I can't wait to see this growth and this constant evolution towards uh, a bigger, better, new Atera. Thank you. Thank you again for being on the show, Matthew, and we'll have to stop by soon.
3: Excellent. Thank you very much.
2: You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Terkel, hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.